Chapter Nine of The Hidden Places. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Hidden Places by Bertrand W. Sinclair. Chapter Nine. Not until Hollister had left Doris at her cousin's home and was walking back downtown did a complete realization of what he had done and pledged himself to do burst upon him. When it did, he pulled up short in his stride, as if he had come physically against some forthright obstruction. For an instant he felt dazed. Then a consuming anger flared in him, anger against the past by which he was still shackled. But he refused to be bound by those old chains whose gently clanking arose to harass him in this hour when life seemed to be holding out a new promise, when he saw happiness beckoning, when he was dreaming of pleasant things. He leaned over the rail on the Granville Street drawbridge, watching a tug pass through, seeing the dusky shape of the small vessel, hearing the ripple of the flood tide against the stone piers, and scarcely conscious of the bridge or the ship or the gray dimness of the sea, so profound was the concentration of his mind on this problem. It did not perplex him. It maddened him. He whispered a defiant protest to himself and walked on. He was able to think more calmly when he reached his room. There were the facts, the simple, undeniable facts, to be faced without shrinking and a decision to be made. For months Hollister, when he thought of the past, thought of it as a slate which had been wiped clean. He was dead, officially dead. His few distant relatives had accepted the official report without question. Myra had accepted it, acted upon it. Outside the British War Office no one knew, no one dreamed that he was alive. He had served in the Imperials. He recalled the difficulties and delays of getting his identity reestablished in the coldly impersonal, maddening, deliberate official departments which dealt with his case. He had succeeded. His back pay had been granted. A gratuity was still forthcoming, but Hollister knew that the record of his case was entangled with miles of red tape. He was dead killed in action. It would never occur to the British War Office to seek publicity for the fact that he was not dead. There was no machinery for that purpose. Even if there were such machinery, there was no one to pull the levers. Nothing was ever set in motion in the War Office without pulling a diversity of levers. So much for that. Hollister, recalling his experience in London, smiled sardonically as thought of the British War Office voluntarily troubling itself about dead men who came to life. The War Office would not know him. The War Office did not know men. It only knew identification numbers, regiments, ranks, things properly documented, officially assigned. It was disdainful of any casual inquiry. It would shunt such from official to official, from department to department, until the inquirer was worn out, his patience, 
his fund of postage, and his time alike exhausted. No, the British War Office would neither know, nor care, nor tell. Surely the slate was sponged clean. Should he condemn himself and Doris Cleveland to heartache and loneliness because of a technicality? To Hollister it seemed no more than that. Myra had married again. Would she, reckoning the chance that she learned he was alive, rise up to denounce him? Hardly. His own people? They were few and far away. His friends? The war had ripped everything loose, broken the old combinations, scattered the groups. There was, for Hollister, nothing left of the old days, and he himself was dead, officially dead. After all, it narrowed to himself and Doris Cleveland and an ethical question. He did not shut his eyes to the fact that for him this marriage would be bigamy, that their children would be illegitimate in the eyes of the law if legal scrutiny ever laid bare their father's history, nor that by all the accepted dictums of current morality he would be leading an innocent woman into sin. But current morality had ceased to have its old significance for Hollister. He had seen too much of it vaporized so readily in the furnace of the war. Convention had lost any power to dismay him. His world had used him in its hour of need, had flung him into the pit, and when he crawled out maimed, discouraged, stripped of everything that had made life precious, this world of his fellows shunned him because of what he had suffered in their behalf. So he held himself under no obligation to be guided by their moral dictums. He was critical of accepted standards because he had observed that an act might be within the law and still outrage humanity. It might be legally sanctioned and socially approved and spread intolerable misery in its wake. Contrarywise, he could conceive a thing beyond the law being meritorious in itself. With the Persian tent-maker, Hollister had begun to see that a hair, perhaps, divides the false and true. There was no falsity in his love, in his aching desire to lay hold of happiness out of the muddle of his life, to bestow happiness, if he could, upon a woman who, like himself, had suffered misfortune. Within him there was the instinct to clutch firmly this chance which lay at hand. For Hollister the question was not, is this thing right or wrong in the eyes of the world, but is it right for her and for me? And always he got the one answer, the answer with which lovers have justified themselves ever since love became something more than the mere breeding instinct of animals. Hollister could not see himself as a man guilty of moral obliquity if he let the graveyard of the past retain its unseemly corpse without legal exhumation and examination and the delivering of a formal verdict upon what was already an accomplished fact. Nevertheless, he forced himself to consider just what it would mean to take that step, Briefly, it would be necessary for him to go to London, 
to secure documentary evidence. Then he must return to Canada, enter suit against Myra, secure service upon her here in British Columbia. There would be a trial and a temporary decree. After the lapse of twelve months, a divorce absolute. He was up against a stone wall. Even if he nerved himself to public rattling of the skeleton in his private life, he did not have the means. That was final. He did not have money for such an undertaking, even if he beggared himself. That was a material factor as inexorable as death. Actual freedom he had in full measure. Legal freedom could only be purchased at a price and he did not have the price. Perhaps that decided Hollister. Perhaps he would have made that decision in any case. He had no friends to be shocked. He had no reputation to be smirched. He was, he had said with a bitter wistfulness, a stray dog. And Doris Cleveland was in very much the same position. Two unfortunates cleaving to each other, moved by a genuine human passion. If they could be happy together, they had a right to be together. Hollister challenged his reason to refute that cry of his heart. He disposed finally of the last uncertainty, whether he should tell Doris. And a negative to that rose instantly to his lips. The past was a dead past. Let it remain dead. Buried. Its ghost would never rise to trouble them. Of that he was very sure. Hollister went to bed, but not to sleep. He heard a great clock somewhere in the town strike twelve, and then one, while he still lay staring up at the dusky ceiling. But his thoughts had taken a pleasanter road. He had turned over the pages of his life history, scanned them with a gloomy and critical eye, and cast them with decisive finality into the wastebasket. He was about to begin a new book, the book of the future. It was pleasant to contemplate what he and Doris Cleveland together would write on those blank pages. To hope much, to be no longer downcast, to be able to look forward with eagerness, there was a glow in that like good wine. And upon that he slept. Morning brought him no qualms or indecisions. But it did bring him to a consideration of very practical matters, which yesterday's emotional crisis had overshadowed. That is to say, Hollister began to take stock of the means whereby they two should live. It was not an immediately pressing matter, since he had a few hundred dollars in hand, but he was not short-sighted, and he knew it would ultimately become so. Hence, naturally, his mind turned once more to that asset which had been one factor in bringing him back to British Columbia, the timber limit he owned in the Toba Valley. He began to consider that seriously. Its value had shrunk appreciably under his examination. He had certainly been tricked in its purchase, and he did not know if he had any recourse. 
he rather thought there should be some way of getting money back from people who obtained it under false pretenses. The limit, he was quite sure, contained less than half the timber Lewis and Company had solemnly represented it to carry. He grew uneasy thinking of that. All his eggs were in that wooden basket. He found himself anxious to know what he could expect, what he could do. There was a considerable amount of good cedar there. It should bring five or six thousand dollars, even if he had to accept the fraud and make the best of it. When he reflected upon what a difference the possession or lack of money might mean to himself and Doris, before long all his acquired and cultivated knowledge of business affairs began to spur him to some action. As soon as he finished his breakfast, he set off for the office of the timber specialist. He already had a plan mapped out. It might work and it might not but it was worth trying. As he walked down the street, Hollister felt keenly, for the first time in his thirty-one years of existence, how vastly important mere bread and butter may become. He had always been accustomed to money. Consequently, he had very few illusions either about money as such or the various methods of acquiring money. He had undergone too rigorous a business training for that. He knew how easy it was to make money with money, and how difficult, how very nearly impossible it was, for the penniless man to secure more than a living by his utmost exertion. If this timber holding should turn out to be worthless, if it should prove unsaleable at any price, it would be a question of a job for him before so very long. With the handicap of his face, with that universal inclination of people to avoid him because they dislike to look on the direct result of settling international difficulties with bayonets and high explosives and poison gas, he would not fare very well in the search for a decent job. Poverty had never seemed to present quite such a sinister face as it did to Hollister when he reached this point in his self-communings. Mr. Lewis received him with a total lack of the bland dignity Hollister remembered. The man seemed uneasy, distracted. His eyes had a furtive look in them. Hollister, however, had not come there to make a study of Mr. Lewis's physiognomy or manner. "'I went up to Toba Inlet a while ago and had a look over that timber limit of mine,' he began abruptly. "'I'd like to see the documents bearing on that, if you don't mind.' Mr. Lewis looked at him uncertainly, but he called a clerk and issued an order. While the clerk was on his mission to the files, Lewis put a few questions which Hollister answered without disclosing what he had in mind. It struck him, though, that the tone of Mr. Lewis's inquiry bordered upon the anxious. Presently the clerk returned with the papers. Hollister took them up. He selected the agreement of sale, a letter or two, the original cruiser's estimate, a series of tax receipts, held them in his hand, and looked at Lewis. 
"'You haven't succeeded in finding a buyer, I suppose?' "'In the winter,' Lewis replied, "'there is very little stir in timber.' "'There is going to be some sort of stir in this timber before long,' Hollister said. The worried expression deepened on Mr. Lewis's face. "'The fact is,' Hollister continued evenly, "'I made a rough survey of that timber and found it away off color. "'You represented it to contain so many million feet. "'It doesn't. Nowhere near. "'I appear to have been rather badly stung.' and I really don't wonder it hasn't been resold. What do you propose to do about this? Mr. Lewis made a gesture of deprecation. There must be some mistake, Mr. Hollister. No doubt of that, Hollister agreed dryly. The point is, who shall pay for the mistake? Mr. Lewis looked out of the window. He seemed suddenly to be stricken with an attitude of remoteness. It occurred to Hollister that the man was not thinking about the matter at all. "'Well?' he questioned sharply. The eyes of the specialist in timber turned back to him uneasily. "'Well?' he echoed. Hollister put the documents in his pocket. He gathered up those on the desk and put them also in his pocket. He was angry because he was baffled. This was a matter of vital importance to him, and this man seemed able to insulate himself against either threat or suggestion. "'My dear sir,' Lewis expostulated. Even his protest was half-hearted, lacked honest indignation. Hollister rose. "'I'm going to keep these,' he said irritably. You don't seem to take much interest in the fact that you have laid yourself open to a charge of fraud, and that I am going to do something about it if you don't. Oh, go ahead, Lewis broke out pettishly. I don't care what you do. Hollister stared at him in amazement. The man's eyes met his for a moment, then shifted to the opposite wall, became fixed there. He sat half-turned in his chair. He seemed to grow intent on something, to become wrapped in some fog of cogitation, through which Hollister and his affairs appeared only as inconsequential phantoms. In the doorway, Hollister looked back over his shoulder. The man sat mute, immobile, staring fixedly at the wall. Down the street, Hollister turned once more to look up at the gilt-lettered windows. Something had happened to Mr. Lewis. Something had jolted the specialist in British Columbia timber and paralyzed his business nerve centers. Some catastrophe had overtaken him, or impended, beside which the ugly matter Hollister laid before him was of no consequence. But it was of consequence to Hollister, as vital as the breaker of water and handful of ship's biscuits is to castaways in an open boat in mid-ocean. It angered him to feel a matter of such deep concern brushed aside. He walked on down the street, thinking what he should do. Midway of the next block, a firm name, 
another concern which dealt in timber, rose before his eyes. He entered the office. "'Mr. McFarlane or Mr. Lee?' he said to the desk man. A short, stout individual came forward, glanced at Hollister's scarred face with that involuntary disapproval which Hollister was accustomed to catch in people's expression before they suppressed it out of pity or courtesy, or a mixture of both. "'I am Mr. McFarlane.' "'I want legal advice on a matter of considerable importance,' Hollister came straight to the point. "'Can you recommend an able lawyer, one with considerable experience in timber litigation preferred?' "'I can. Malcolm McFarlane, second floor Sibley Block. If it's legal business relating to timber, he's your man. Not because he happens to be my brother,' McFarland smiled broadly, but because he knows his business. Ask any timber concern. They'll tell you. Hollister thanked him and retraced his steps to the office building he had just quitted. In an office directly under the Lewis quarters, he introduced himself to Malcolm McFarland, a bulkier, less elderly duplicate of his brother, the timber broker. Hollister stated his case briefly and clearly. He put it in the form of a hypothetical case, naming no names. McFarlane listened, asked questions, nodded understanding. "'You could recover on the ground of misrepresentation,' he said at last. "'The case, as you state it, is clear. It could be interpreted as fraud and hence criminal.' if collusion between the maker of the false estimate and the vendor could be proven. In any case, the vendor could be held accountable for his misrepresentation of value. Your remedy lies in a civil suit, provided an authentic cruise established your estimate of such a small quantity of merchantable timber. I should say you could recover the principal with interest and costs always provided the vendor is financially responsible. I presume they are. Lewis and Company sold me this timber. Here are the papers. Will you undertake this matter for me? McFarlane jerked his thumb towards the ceiling. This Lewis above me? Yes. Hollister laid the documents before McFarlane. He ran through them, laid them down, and looked reflectively at Hollister. "'I'm afraid,' he said slowly, "'you are making your move too late.' "'Why?' Hollister demanded uneasily. "'Evidently you aren't aware what has happened to Lewis. I take it you haven't been reading the papers?' "'I haven't,' Hollister admitted. What has happened? His concern has gone smash, McFarland stated. I happen to be sure of that, because I'm acting for two creditors. A receiver has been appointed. Lewis himself is in deep. He is at present at large on bail, charged with unlawful conversion of monies entrusted to his care. You have a case, clear enough, but... 
he threw out his hands with a suggestive motion. They're bankrupt. I see, Hollister muttered. I appear to be out of luck, then. Unfortunately, yes, MacFarlane continued. You could get a judgment against them, but it would be worthless. Simply throwing good money after bad. There will be half a dozen other judgments recorded against them, a dozen other claims put in, before you could get action. Of course, I could proceed on your behalf and let you in for a lot of costs, but I would rather not earn my fees in that manner. I'm satisfied there won't be more than a few cents on the dollar for anybody. That seems final enough, Hollister said. I am obliged to you, Mr. MacFarlane. He went out again into a street filled with people hurrying about their affairs in the spring sunshine. So much for that, he reflected, not without a touch of contemptuous anger against Lewis. He understood now the man's troubled absorption, with the penitentiary staring him in the face. At any rate, the property was not involved. Whatever it's worth, it was his, and the only asset at his command. He would have to make the best of it, dispose of it for what he could get. Meantime, Doris Cleveland began to loom bigger in his mind than this timber limit. He suffered a vast impatience until he should see her again. He had touches, this morning, of incredulous astonishment before the fact that he could love and be loved. He felt once or twice that this promise of happiness would prove an illusion, something he had dreamed if he did not soon verify it by sight and speech. He was to call for her at two o'clock. They had planned to take a Fourth Avenue car to the end of the line and walk thence past the Jericho Club grounds and out a driveway that left the houses of the town far behind, a road that went winding along the gentle curve of a shoreline where the gulf swell whispered or thundered, according to the weather. Doris was a good walker. On the level road she kept step without faltering or effort, holding Hollister's hand, not because she needed it for guidance, but because it was her pleasure. They came under a high wooded slope. "'Listen to the birds,' she said, with a gentle pressure on his fingers. "'I can smell the woods and feel the air soft as a caress.' I can't see the buds bursting, or the new pale green leaves, but I know what it is like. Sometimes I think that beauty is a feeling instead of a fact. Perhaps if I could see it as well as feel it. Still, the birds wouldn't sing more sweetly if I could see them there swaying on the little branches, would they, Bob? There was a wistfulness but only a shadow of regret in her tone. And there were no shadows on the fresh young face she turned to Hollister. He bent to kiss that sweet mouth, and he was again thankful that she had no sight to be offended by his devastated features. His lips, unsightly as they were, 
had power to stir her. She blushed and hid her face against his coat. They found a dry log to sit upon, a great tree trunk cast by a storm above high water mark. Now and then a motor whirred by, but for the most part the drive lay silent, a winding ribbon of asphalt between the sea and the wooded heights of Point Grey. English Bay sparkled between them and the city. Beyond the purple smoke haze driven inland by the west wind rose the white crests of the Capilanos, an alpine background to the seaboard town. Hollister could hear the whine of sawmills, the rumble of trolley cars, the clang of steel in a great shipyard, and the tide whispering on the wet sands at his feet, the birds twittering among the budding alders. And as far as his eyes could reach along the coast, there lifted enormous, saw-toothed mountains. They stood out against a sapphire sky with extraordinary vividness, with remarkable brilliancy of color, with an austere dignity. Hollister put his arm around the girl. She nestled close to him. A little sigh escaped her lips. "'What is it, Doris?' "'I was just remembering how I lay awake last night,' she said. "'Thinking, thinking until my brain seemed like some sort of machine "'that would run on and on, grinding out thoughts till I was worn out.' "'What about?' he asked. "'About you and myself,' she said simply. "'About what is ahead of us. "'I think I was a little bit afraid.' "'Of me?' "'Oh, no,' she tightened her grip on his hand. "'I can't imagine myself being afraid of you. "'I like you too much. "'But, but, well, I was thinking of myself, really, "'of myself in relation to you. "'I couldn't help seeing myself as a handicap.' I could see you beginning to chafe finally under the burden of a blind wife, growing impatient at my helplessness, which you do not yet realize, and in the end, oh, well, one can think all sorts of things in spite of a resolution not to think. It stung Hollister. Good God! he cried. You don't realize it's only the fact you can't see me that makes it possible. Why, I've clutched at you the way a drowning man clutches at anything. That I should get tired of you, feel you as a burden, it's unthinkable. I'm thankful you're blind. I shall always be glad you can't see. If you could, what sort of picture of me have you in your mind? "'Perhaps not a very clear one,' the girl answered slowly. "'But I hear your voice, and it is a pleasant one. "'I feel your touch, and there is something there that moves me in the oddest way. "'I know that you are a big man and strong. "'Of course I don't know whether your eyes are blue or brown, "'whether your hair is fair or dark, and I don't care.' As for your face, 
I can't possibly imagine it as terrible, unless you are angry. What are scars? Nothing, nothing. I can't see them. It wouldn't make any difference if I could. It would, he muttered. I'm afraid it would. Doris shook her head. She looked up at him with that peculiarly direct, intent gaze which always gave him the impression that she did see. Her eyes, the soft gray of a summer rain cloud, no one would have guessed them sightless. They seemed to see, to be expressive, to glow and soften. She lifted a hand to Hollister's face. He did not shrink while those soft fingers went exploring the devastation wrought by the exploding shell. They touched caressingly the scarred and vivid flesh. And they finished with a gentle pat on his cheek and a momentary kittenish rumpling of his hair. "'I cannot find so very much amiss,' she said. "'Your nose is a bit awry, and there is a hollow in one cheek. "'I can feel scars. What does it matter? "'A man is what he thinks and feels and does. "'I am the maimed one, really. "'There is so much I can't do, Bob. "'You don't realize it yet.' and we won't always be living this way, sitting idle on the beach, going to a show, having tea in the Granada. I used to run and swim and climb hills. I could have gone anywhere with you, done anything, been as good a mate as any primitive woman. But my wings are clipped. I can only get about in familiar surroundings." and sometimes it grows intolerable. I rebel, I rave, and wish I were dead. And if I thought I was hampering you, and you were beginning to regret you had married me, why, I couldn't bear it. That's what my brain was buzzing with last night. Do any of those things strike you as serious obstacles now, when I have my arms around you? Hollister demanded. She shook her head. No. Really and truly, right now, I'm perfectly willing to take any sort of chance on the future, if you're in it, she said thoughtfully. That's the sort of effect you have on me. I suppose that's natural enough. Then we feel precisely the same, Hollister declared. AND YOU ARE NOT TO HAVE ANY MORE DOUBTS ABOUT ME. I TELL YOU, DORIS, THAT BESIDES WANTING YOU, I NEED YOU. I CAN BE YOUR EYES, AND FOR ME, YOU WILL BE LIKE A COMPASS TO A SAILOR IN A FOG, SOMETHING TO STEER A COURSE BY. SO LET'S STOP TALKING ABOUT WHETHER WE'RE GOING TO TAKE THE PLUNGE. LET'S TALK ABOUT HOW WE'RE GOING TO LIVE, AND WHERE. A whimsical expression tippled across the girl's face, a mixture of tenderness and mischief. "'I've warned you,' she said with mock solemnity. "'Your blood be upon your own head.' They both laughed. End of chapter 9 Recording by Roger Moline